Welcome to another episode of Latino Book Review Presents. Remember to visit latinobookreview.com and follow us on your favorite social media platforms. Our guest today is a multifaceted author. She writes picture books, middle grade stories, and young adult fiction. In 2019, she won the prestigious John Newbery Medal, and she has won a long list of other awards. She's a New York Times bestselling author, and she's here with us to talk about her work. Latino Book Review presents Meg Medina. Meg Medina, thank you so much for being with us here on Latino Book Review presents. Oh, thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. We are excited too. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You write books for children of all ages or kids for all ages, right? So tell us about your trajectory and who you are and why you decided to write for kids of all ages. Oh my goodness, it's such a, a long and twisted story. So I'm going to try to give you the, the quickest version. So I, I do write picture book and middle grade and young adult or teen novels. All my work really explores girls and culture and the intersection of those two things with family and growing up. I do that through the Latino lens, really. I like to say that my work looks at the universal sort of problems of growing up. The things I think all young people think about, things like friendships, people they can count on, their families, being part of their community in, in whatever way they define that all of those things. But I come to it through the eyes of typically Latino girls. And I like to think that in doing that sort of combination of things, our kids can see themselves, their families, the sound, you know, el calorcito de la familia, how we are, but also kids outside the culture can see themselves too. Yes. The same sorts of things that they're wondering about in their own ways and in their own interpretations of those things. So I've been doing that pretty much since I began in 2008, I think was my first book. It was called Milagros, Girl From Away. And then shortly after that novel, and I published a picture book called The Aisa Wants a Car. And that picture book was was an accidental book. I wrote it thinking, I, I really, to be honest with you, Hector, I was having a lot of trouble writing a novel the novel that would become The Girl Who Could Silence a Wind. I just couldn't get the voice and the events. I was struggling. And I decided I was going to take a small rest and try my hand at a picture book, something shorter, something that I thought I could just sort of feel more successful with. And what ended up happening is I wrote this picture book that was very, very inspired by my real life, the Aisa, Isaira Metautin, who unfortunately died recently during covid pero Tiaisa was a woman who was afraid of everything. When she came from Cuba in the late 60s, tenía los nervios destrozados, as my mother would say, right? They, <laughs> she was just a nervous wreck. But of all the people in the family, she is the one who got her driver's license. And we were living in New York at the time. Uh, she got her driver's license and it sort of freed our family. I think it like it was this first moment of belonging in this country and knowing that we were going to be staying, all of these things. So anyway, I wrote this picture book about a little girl and her tia, the Aisa, who wants a car, and they save together and they buy it. And so really what happened is that that book won an award called the Ezra Jack Keats Award, which is an award that's given to books that center protagonists outside of mainstream white protagonists, right? I had a Latina tia Isa, was the main character. 
And I think it just opened up my work to librarians and to teachers. And it was sort of an introduction into the publishing industry. And since then, you know, I've written lots of other books, including uh, Medici Suarez Changes Gears that won the 2019 Newbery. And I've had other successes in publishing with my work. Yes. But I, I mean, I think that it's really because of the the marriage of the specific with the universal sort of longings of young people. Yes. So tell me about your family. I know that your parents, they were born in Cuba and you were born in the U.S., but tell me about how the Cuban-American identity has shaped your writing. As a child, I feel like I, I was completely bicultural in the sense that my school life was very American you know, todo, romper room, the lunchroom, the hamburgers, the pizza y todo eso, right? All of that. But as soon as you got home, right, it was something else. <laughs> it was arroz con frijoles, todo en español. It was niña, que dirán? You know, <laughs> it, <laughs> my mother's obsession with how we presented to the world. Right. Which is a very Latin American thing to do, right? <laughs> oh, my good. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, this worry that people were going to not, you didn't want anyone to interpret you as, as vulgar or algo así, right? And, and so there was this enormous pressure to, you know, represent the very best, right? Whether it was reasonable <laughs> or not. <laughs> Pero, um, yeah, it was, it was strange to be, I was the first American and born in my family, North American born in my family. My sister, Lidia Maria, was also born in Cuba. Even my husband, the man I married to all these years, was also born in, in Havana. So I was sort of like the translator, the cultural translator of the family. For example, when Tia Isa came from Cuba with Hera and my grandparents in the 60s, I remember so clearly having to explain to them things like the intercom in the building. Right, how it worked. Mira, Prieta, Haki, you press here, the voice comes out over there. All of these like little things about US life, right? And then as I got older, harder things about US life, because of course I then became a young teenager in the 70s in New York City and everything was changing. The women's march, you know, the women's liberation movement. All of it. It was a clash of cultures trying to be both American and Cuban. And, you know, that still sort of lingers. When we think of Cuban immigrants, sometimes we assume of a certain kind of politics. We assume, you know, they live in certain kinds of places, certain ideas, etc. And it's not really the case, or I haven't found that myself, but it can be frustrating when the American side of your brain sees something in one way, yes. but your heritage or your the elders in your family see it another. So that was a struggle. And still, you know, in the current political landscape, sometimes it's a big struggle for me. Uh, I think for everyone, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would say that I was really bicultural, but it was such a gift in so many ways. It was it was a traumatizing and a gift that was a blessing. So there's no way to lose your country and your family and your identity and to migrate into a new country, no matter how welcoming the country is. The dislodging of all you know, mm -hmm. uh, the dislodging of the people that you love, the breaking apart of families along ideological issues, there's no way that that is not traumatizing. And in my mother's case, you know, her marriage collapsed. My father had arrived in the country earlier and fell in love, como una americana, as my mother would always say, right? And, <laughs> and 
you know, their marriage did not last. And she found herself uh, raising two daughters, you know, in a, in a new country and working in a factory. So I think trauma has a way of creating anxiety in families. It has a way of sparking sometimes mental health issues in families. It also has the weird possibility of sparking behaviors that actually serve me really well as a writer. So my tias, abuela, toda, were storytellers, cuentistas. And the stories they would tell me were, were the stories of their lives, which I think they needed to tell themselves in all the augmented forms that I'm sure they, they took. Yes. Because, of course, in Cuba, the mangoes were bigger, the chickens were tastier, the, you know, <laughs> todo es mejor, right? So, but anyway. The food you know, tastes the, better. <laughs> yeah, right. People were nicer, you know, todo eso, right? So, so however it was, in truth, what I think they were doing was this notion, like sharing, repeating their identities their experiences that had been erased and taken from them. And in that process of sort of nursing their own trauma, I think they gave me a storyteller's ear and they gave me a sense of basis of that there was something more than my apartment on 158th Street in Queens, that I came from a bigger family, that there was a town, that there was a community that, you know, and it, it also just sort of broadened my imagination because I had to imagine this place with clear water where you could see your toenails in the sand yes. and what a sugarcane field looked like. And my mother would draw things for me, you know, things like that. So even in trauma, there was a beautiful part of it, too. Thank you for sharing that, Meg. And bringing this culture, the Cuban-American heritage with you and all the things that you have described... How do you think you were able to adapt it to the American consciousness, if we want to call it that? Well, so here's the thing. I think that the characters that I grab for the pages are bicultural kids themselves, all of them. In every, every novel and every picture book and every middle grade novel that I've written, they're all bicultural kids. So I'm mining the experiences that I had, those sort of sensibilities, those questions that I had, the frustrations that I had. And I sort of marry it to a more contemporary situation, right? The kids now. So it's not memoir. I'm not writing memoir, but it's really interesting, right? The, the issues of growing up, the ways that were frustrated and the ways that were fed and empowered don't change very much, you know, at their essence. What changes are the particular things, right? The, you know, the, the toys we're playing with, the language that we use, the, um, the forms of entertainment. But at the core, I think certain things endure. And so I think that's how I've really done it. I've just tried to really tell the truth and not polish it up too much. I've tried to write the things as they really felt to me as a young person. Yes. In the hope that young people reading them can then relate and unpack this as they're reading it with their teachers, with their parents, with their friends, even, you know, by themselves, that beautiful sort of self-reflection that happens to kids as they're reading on their own and connecting to a character. And you're a recipient. You won the Newbery Medal for your middle grade novel, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. And of course, I think what you're saying relates to this character, Mercy Suarez. 
Tell us about this character. You have written several books about this character. So tell us about this persona and how it relates to the surrounding world and what kind of things you think the kids that are reading these books, what kind of things they can get out of your books. So Mercy was irresistible to me. She began in a short story called Sol Painting, which was in an anthology called Flying Lessons and Other Stories. And it was about a girl whose father owns a painting company, Sol Painting Inc., Sol like the sun. And uh, he's uh, exchanged painting the gymnasium at her new fancy school for a tuition rebate for her. And in that story, it's a look at economics and it's a look at the sacrifices that our parents make for us in their thinking of how they're going to help us with our success and how that lands on kids, how that feels and how what those frustrations are. And when I finished that story, I wasn't done with her. I kept thinking, where does she live and with whom? And who are her friends at school? What does that school look like? What does it look like for a working class Cuban-American girl in Florida to suddenly be at this really fancy upscale school? What does it feel like to live in her extended family and all of these things? But what I wanted to give her mostly was a really healthy, functioning family. I wanted to do that because we have so many negative stereotypes of the Latino family. And I wanted to write in opposition to that, right? I wanted to write the people who I feel like I know and see all the time, namely people who adore their children, who send to their children, for whom family is, is the key. Um, it has nothing to do with money and privilege or any of that. It was, it's about la familia, el centro de todo. So that's where the Suarez family came from. And I said it in Florida because, honestly, my mother dreamed always of living in Florida when we were little and things would go bad at the factory where she worked. Me voy para Miami. <laughs> she was always threatening she was going to move us to Miami. We never got there. I mean, she got there later, but not when, you know, we would pack boxes and everything. <laughs> but anyway. This is when you were living in Massachusetts or New York? In, in New York, yeah. And so... In the end, I, I gave them las casitas, three little houses attached, just like my mother's cousins lived in Hialeah. You know, they had, it was three generations of the family and they had figured out how to make the path connect the houses. So I recreated that. And then I gave Mercy's family a problem, not just economics, which is the normal problem of budgeting and not having enough for all you want and so on. But I gave them a real health problem uh, with Lolo. She's really attached to her abuelo, Leopoldo Suarez, and the family's been keeping a secret from her, as we find out in, in the first book, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, that he has Alzheimer's. But now he's reached the part where it's no longer something that you can um, hide, no hay disimulo, right? It's impossible. And Mercy has to be told what's happened. So when kids go into the sixth grade, the fifth grade, the sixth grade, the seventh and eighth grade, she's, she's in that age group. The metamorphosis is shocking. It's about her metamorphosis, certainly physically with her friends, with all of the things that happened to her socially. But it's also the metamorphosis that happens to kids emotionally, especially when hard things start to happen in a family. You know, and I, as I was writing this, my own mother was, was very ill. My mother had uh, advanced cancer. And she had denied treatment and also living with me at the time. I, I brought my mother to live with me, but my mother-in-law was living here, Adela, who was in her 80s, and my tia Isa, 
So I had three elderly women and my teenage children, and we were all in one, packed in one little house in Virginia. I don't know how this house did not explode, but <laughs> it was something. It was, it was beautiful and painful. Caretaking was a very hard, hard thing for us to do as a family. So all of those experiences are in these novels. And interestingly, the novels are also funny because kids are funny. Even when children are in hard situations, they find the light. They can't help themselves. And so I gave Merci joy as well. Certainly in the first novel and in the second one that came out this year, Merci Suarez Can't Dance, you know, it's this... Which is the one that I was going to ask you next, but please go ahead. Yes! <laughs> what do you want to know? Yes, it was a fun book to write. Yeah, and it's been a very successful series. And of course, with this one, Merci Suarez Can't Dance, Merci faces other issues, right? So why, why don't you tell us about that? Yes. You know what the issue is? Love. Oh my goodness, all the different kinds of ways that love starts to appear when we are 12 and 13 years old, right? So primero, you know, the, the love she notices that Dia has for a new boyfriend, the love between her parents, the love that she's watching between her grandparents, which is love that has endured over many decades and that is being tested now in his illness. At school, The love that, you know, you the crushes that you see all around you. And suddenly Medici for the first time is wondering if she herself has a crush on one of her classmates. The secret crushes that she has on movie stars. <laughs> you know, the, the moments when you kissed a poster of a movie star, you pretended all those things. <laughs> love those awkward moments. You see, I know. You can't lie to me, Hector. I, this happens. <laughs> It happens to so everyone. It happens to everyone. Exactly. So that's what I drew. That's what I drew. And all the while knowing that Lolo is getting more ill and more impacted. So that storyline continues to, to build and become more delicate and difficult as Medici is sort of individuating and figuring out who she is. That's the, the two that are out. And then the last, and it's the very last one in the series because she'll be in the eighth grade and it's Medici Suarez plays it cool. That was a real, it was a joy and a, a real challenge because that was it. I had to bring all of those storylines to their natural conclusion. You know, when you write three books with the same character, even though you're adding new characters, they become almost real. And um, they become a part of you, right? Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I'm going to miss her after she comes out in, in the fall. I don't know. It'll be it'll be strange. I, my hope is that Medici stays on the shelf and finds new generations of of readers. I mean, I think because the first novel won the Newbery, I think that stays in print, you know, forever. So that's a good thing. And But I, I do hope that readers continue to sort of reach for these books to to connect, to feel like their middle school years are being named accurately and and that they just enjoy it for the really light and funny moments that are in there and also for the more serious things that she has to untangle. I think we're going to see Mercy Suarez for a while on the shelves. The fact that she can't dance is something that people don't normally associate with Latinx cultures or with Latin American cultures. And it makes it very real because that's many times what happens to people that feel 
disconnected to what society expects from us, but somehow we need to overcome those struggles, right? Yes, I think that's true. It's dancing. How many kids who are from Latino backgrounds don't speak Spanish and feel like, am I, am I a Latino? You know, like they have all of these responses, uh, racial issues as well, in terms of what defines Latinidad. So I think all of those things, all of those identities, all of those conversations need to be had. Yes, and many times Latinos or Latinas who don't speak Spanish, they feel judged. Sometimes other people don't judge them, sometimes they do, but it's a feeling that people have to live with. And of course, it's again, like in the case of Mercy Suarez, who can dance and who's going through the things that middle school kids go through that actually create obstacles that could expand to other aspects of their lives. It's been a really beautiful journey. I'm I don't know. I feel great, so grateful that she appeared sort of in the story and that I followed her for all these years. Sometimes, you know, it's easy when you're writing to, there are just so many things, right, that you can write about and so on. But I've been so curious about her. When I, my editor and I just finished putting the last manuscript into production and it, it felt peaceful. I'm glad to hear that. And you were a school teacher, am I right? I was, yes, yes. For how many years were you a school teacher? Almost 10. I came into teaching very reluctantly, almost by, well, here's what happened. I was, my first job out of college was as an editorial assistant, believe it or not, at a major publishing house. Was that intentional? I was terrible. <laughs> no, I had no idea. I had no, no idea. I knew I, I had been an English writing minor. I was a communications major. I knew I wanted to do something with media and writing, but I, I really didn't have a fully formed idea. And I tried to be an editorial assistant. I think I was terrible. And so I left that job and New York City was in a teaching shortage. So all you needed to do was promise that you were going to take a few credits in education and they gave you the keys and let you loose. <laughs> But here's what happened. I w all right. So my mother was thrilled porque ella en Cuba había sido maestra, right? So she was a teacher. My tía Jera was a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. I had a cousin, Ada Rosa, who was a teacher. And my mother would say, that's the perfect job for you. And that made me even angrier. <laughs> And also because it was such a traditionally female profession, I was just furious. I wanted no part of it. And I said to myself, I'm going to do this until I find my quote unquote real calling and real job. Well, I go to PS19 in Queens, New York, and I get a class of kids and the kids, almost all of them that year were from La República Dominicana. I mean, recently arrived. Some had arrived two or three days before, a week before, a few months before, and they gave me the keys and they gave me these children And here I was. The good news is that sometimes when you don't know what you're doing, you do all kinds of things and, so, and, and some of them are right. And one thing I did is that I walked the neighborhood. It was in Corona. And I walked and I met, I went to visit their parents. Hola, ¿qué tal? Yo soy Meg, voy a ser maestra. You know, <laughs> I introduced myself. I created relationship with these children and I fell in love with By the end of the year, I remember the last day of school. It was an old, old building, like with those windows, with the window poles that you had to close the windows and all that. And I had just made so many mistakes that year and so on. But 
when they were leaving me and I knew I wasn't going to see Neil de la Cruz, ni Francisco, ni Alexandra Fermin, like all of these kids, I was filled with so much emotion and so much sadness. I was going to miss them. I, I wanted the next teacher to take care of them and love them. Yes. And I fell in love with children again, like this notion. And then as I was teaching at other schools over the years, I was teaching English, I was teaching children's literature, and I fell in love with children's literature again in a new way. And over the years, I just, everything seemed to point me, even though I didn't realize it, to the career I'm in right now. I started with an editorial sort of job. I was in close contact with children, learning with them, alongside them, teaching them at the same time. I was immersed in children's literature and in the world of how it is that we create enthusiasm in children for wonder, for being thirsty to know and to to build them, right? To help them feel strong enough. Yes. And all of those things, as it turned out, pointed me eventually to exactly the spot I'm in now. And so, you know, it's so funny, right? I felt so lost at that time. <laughs> like, <laughs> ¿Qué hago? I don't know what I'm doing. I have no career. I guess I yo. <laughs> but one thing leads to another. So I never worry when people switch careers or have different careers or don't quite settle themselves for a while. Yeah. I started writing my first book when I was 40. Yes. And I feel like I wish maybe that I had started earlier, but I think I needed all that time and all those experiences in, in journalism and in teaching and in all of those things to be able to do this now. It's interesting how life works. I mean, because as you were saying in the beginning of the interview, you lived a childhood that was truly bicultural in terms of, you know, the mix of the American culture and the Cuban culture and how you actually made your family Cuban-American. And you ended up being a teacher for a decade. So I can see a clear path. If you told me right now, I knew exactly what I was going to do, which is write books for children, I would say, yeah, it makes complete sense. There is a clear line. Can you see that line as well? Yeah, I can. At the time, I didn't. But here's the funny thing, Hector. When I write novels, I never know the plot either. I only know the girl and the outside problem, the immediate problem, the superficial problem. And then as I write the novel... I deepen my understanding of the character and what her truer problem is. And I think my life sort of went that way too, right? <laughs> like, I, I, I had to really discover the woman. I had to drill down and find out, you know, what she really needed to do as I was doing it. That's the, as best as I can describe it. In whatever way I got here, I feel such enormous gratitude, especially now. Like I look around, there's so many wonderful Latino writers coming up, yes. creating work. And it feels exciting to be part of a group of people putting works that help our kids be seen, that create, you know, relationship between communities. It feels exciting to be part of that work. It's exhausting sometimes, but it also feels really meaningful. Let me ask you this. What's a moment in your life, maybe from the time when you were a teacher, 
that marked you forever and that maybe nobody knows but it's a moment that you instill in everything that you do in your life or maybe in every story that you write is there such a moment in your life or a person maybe oh my goodness i think it's a collection of moments there's not just one thing that shapes you or or makes you decide but i would say that deciding to work in the arts isn't an easy choice, right? It's because you know that you're going to be moving into uncertainty. You know that you're going to be moving into a life that has a small percentage of people who do really well. And a lot, the likelihood is, is that you're going to work a very long time and maybe never break in and things like that. So for that to happen, you need these points of light. And sometimes they come as people. Sometimes they come as, as really fortuitous events, you know, that happen. But you need those sort of touchstones that give you enough hope and stamina to keep at it. Because that's the thing. You have to keep at it even when you're told no more than yes. So in my own life, you know, I have the fortune of being married to a man, Javier Menendez. I've known him since I was five years old. Our mothers worked at the same factory in Queens. And when I first wanted to write and I quit my day job and came home and said I was going to write this novel, you know, I had three little children and it was it was almost impossible to think about how we were going to live off of one salary. But Javier, he said to me, I think you can do it. If you really put your mind to it, I think you could do it. So let's try Let's do it for X amount of time and really let's try and see. And he's not a man from a literary background or anything like that, but he is a person who, who believes that I can do it. And that was immensely helpful. I think about mi tías, mi abuelos. I think of like the sacrifices that they made in their life. And a lot of us have this same feeling that they sacrifice so much for our benefit. And they love me imperfectly and in their own neurotic <laughs> ways and all of that. But I was loved. And that was a point of light. That's beautiful. I feel like a lot of, of writers in our community have had experiences like that. Yes, I think a lot of people can identify with this feeling of having to make sacrifices for them to to help their families in one way or another, which is the story of many immigrants to the U.S. and, of course, not only immigrants, but many people out there. And we're running out of time for this interview, but I want to ask you about your... So we talked a little bit about role models and we talked about how you create characters. And, of course, that part of this idea is that you want to make visible these characters for kids to identify with them. So who are the people who made you believe that you could be an author? Because, of course, people, they need a reference for them to visualize themselves in that situation, right? Well, here's what I say all the time. I stand on the shoulders of the women who were writing before me. So I'm standing on the shoulders of Julia Alvarez, of Alma Florada, all the wonderful writers that, that came, Sandra Cisneros, all of the ones who were writing and writing for children before it, it was, uh, I don't want to say easy because it's not easy now for sure. We're still trying to break barriers, but it was really hard earlier. And reading their work, having that on the shelf, although I came to it late, 
in my life, certainly not in childhood, but but later in college and points after, that helped me see that that my own experiences, my my foods, my language, my background was not something shameful that I had to sort of bury and write about something else, like in an English sort of <laughs> tone of voice, but that I could write exactly who I was and, and the people I knew. And that was the story. That was part of the American story also. And that's what I hope my work does for the next generation coming behind me. I, I say this often to people that in publishing right now, like you work hard to have your moment, right? Your moment, get your books, connect with readers, create audience, create community, which I think really reflects our immigrant roots because the way forward was always with community. Your neighborhood, your neighbor who could explain this to you or that to you, like the, that's what we need. And then you become part of the scaffolding for the next group to also climb. It's hard work because you want to rest. You wish it could, you know, let me just write my books and leave me alone. Pero no es así. No es así. You, you need to be on the lookout. You need to remember that their success is your success and really lean into creating a body of work, thinking of your work as, as part of a great collection of work for young people. Somehow we are all connected. I think so. I hope so. Thank you so much. Meg Medina, muchas gracias por estar con nosotros aquí en Latino Book Review Presents. Gracias, Hector. It was just lovely to be here with you. Thank you so much. Remember to visit our website, latinobookreview.com, and sign up to become a patron. Our producers today were Rosy Lima and Gerald Padilla. I am Hector Rendon. Until next time. Because that's the thing. You have to keep at it, even when you're told no more than yes. Latino Book Review.